You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Carol. This is Doug Nordman, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. It was one of those moments this morning as a father I love. I looked down at my daughter and she was nestled into her bed, resting comfortably and quietly for the first time in a long time because it was 8.30 in the morning and she didn't have to get up to go to school. She graduated sixth grade, that's right, she's now a seventh grader and the summer has started and all the worries have left her mind and she can stay in bed late and relax and lounge. And as I looked down at the peacefulness on her face, I realized that these kids are like sponges. They are constantly learning from everything happening around them. They learn in the household. They learn in school. Every moment is filled up with experiences that will change the way they maneuver through life. And yet... Yet, as a parent, there's so much more I want them to learn. For instance, I grew up in a family where good financial behavior was modeled. My parents owned real estate, ran small businesses, and saved by far more than they ever spent. This modeling taught me so much about how I eventually would become a financial adult, yet you know what they didn't do? They didn't sit me down and talk to me about finances. They never explained compounding. We didn't really talk about investing in the stock market, although I saw, for instance, my stepdad looking through the paper, looking at stock quotes for the day. It wasn't something we discussed. I learned by watching them. And it was only much later, as in I was an adult, and in 2014, I was becoming tired at being a physician, exhausted by the practice of medicine, and I read a financial book and realized that I had enough money. Suddenly, this book gave me the vocabulary that my parents never had. You see, my parents had modeled such good behavior that I had done all the right things financially. But I had never understood exactly what I was doing. And therefore, when I got to the point in my career where I was physically and emotionally exhausted, I would have never known that I could back away or even leave it until I happened to read this book. Our kids' brains are stuffed to capacity with knowledge that they receive from their friends 
that they receive from YouTube and the internet, and yes, from what they receive in the classroom. Yet, I want my daughter to have many more choices than I had. I don't want her to have to stumble onto a book to realize that she has financial choices. How do I educate her and yet not overwhelm her? How do I not only model good behavior, but teach her how to manage these financial crossroads that she will continually come to throughout her life? And speaking of things we need to teach our children about, shopping for disability insurance can be complicated, taking too much time to research and understand. At Pattern, they believe doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. This is why thousands of doctors across the U.S. trust them to help compare and understand the insurance they are buying. They do this in three simple steps. First, you request your quotes online. Second, you compare your options and ask questions. Third, you apply risk-free. Request your quotes today at PatternLife.com slash partner slash earn and invest to be confident you have the right policy and your income is protected. You can find that link in our show notes, PatternLife.com slash partner slash E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T. Doug Nordman retired at age 41 after 20 years with the U.S. Navy Submarine Force. He is an enthusiastic surfer, an omnivorous reader, martial arts student, and a veteran of many chaotic home improvement projects. With his retired Navy Reserve spouse, they raised their daughter in Hawaii. He is the author of The Military Guide to Financial Independence and Retirement, The Military Financial Independence and Retirement Pocket Guide, and he is co-author of the forthcoming Raising Your Money Savvy Family. He is also a new grandfather. Is that right, Doug? I'm still getting used to that. (laughs) It's a title that takes a while to get used to it. It might also mean that you're getting a little older. Thank goodness there are no licensing requirements. (laughs) Carol Pittner is an officer in the United States Navy with a bachelor's degree in civil engineering. She is a brand new mom and co-author of the forthcoming Raising Your Money Savvy Family. She not only survived, but thrived as a child in the Nordman household, but also is rumored to have taught Doug a thing or two about what you can do with the kid 401k. I'm sure we'll get there a little later. Carol, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you. I've had the privilege of not only hanging out and talking to your dad, but spending a little time with your mom at Camp Fi. So it's exciting to meet the last member of the family. Now I feel like I know the whole Nordman clan. And you've seen the whole Venn diagram. I mean, you've seen me, you've seen both of my parents, and suddenly the, the whole diagram makes sense. And then I also, in the video, saw your beautiful child. So I've even seen Doug's grandbaby. So There you go. Yeah. So let's start here at the beginning. Doug, talk to me about where you were financially and with work when Carol was born. Well, it's ironic because up to that point in my Navy career, I'd been very happy with everything we were doing. It was challenging and fulfilling, and I was getting promotions and having a good time. But starting family uh, completely up changed our all of our priorities. There was a huge upheaval. Everything changed around to spending more time with my baby daughter, watching her grow up. And that was the first time in my career, I mean, I was 10 years in at that point, that I'd really found any conflicting way of living my life with work and everything else. And I wanted to cut back. Now, of course, in the Navy, especially in a submarine force, that's not easily achievable. But it did jumpstart us to behave more responsibly financially and to get our act together and start saving for financial independence. I'll also point out that In 1992, the book, Your Money or Your Life, was just beginning to hit the shelves, and it really wasn't the instant classic that we seem to think it is today. 
So Carol's birth, in some sense, started some of your interest in financial independence? Absolutely. You've got an idea that you want to spend more time with your family. You know you don't want to spend your time chasing a paycheck. And the way you make that happen is by saving for financial independence. So Carol, you were born into parents who are already thinking fairly deeply about their finances. Can you remember back to your first thoughts of money? Do you have an early childhood memory of what money meant or an understanding of finance? Oh, yeah. So when it came to money itself, the first thought that I have is when I was a toddler and I had a lot of plastic play money, you know, it looked like American coins, but it's all plastic. And I remember just being on the carpet at home and then sorting all these little coins into these different piles. They would be different colors and different sizes. And of course, mom and dad made sure that I had to clean up afterwards. So I had this little cash bank, this little uh, fake cash register that was also plastic and I would have to put the coins back in there. And so my first thought of money was that it was something you play with. You know, it was something that I could spread out and have a good time with. And then I had to make sure I cleaned it up afterwards. Doug, this introduction of the concept of money, this wasn't by accident. You had purposely thought of that as a plaything for her at the beginning to introduce her to this concept. Is that right? Well, we're not as smart as we might have looked in that incident, but it was the sort of situation where we were looking at all the toys out there and we knew that one day that she'd be interested in that kind of a toy. You want to have a piggy bank, you want to understand coins. And it was a natural outgrowth of, you know, the balls and all the other toys you grew up with. So it was fun. It taught her a lot of small motor skills and it was a lot less painful to step on in the middle of the night than a Lego set. And how old, Doug, was Carol when you decided to retire? I had been working toward financial independence without really understanding it throughout the 80s. And then when Marge and I started our family in the early 90s, we began working harder on that. We really didn't have a handle on it, though. This was back before even the uh, 4% safe withdrawal rate studies had been published. It was years before the uh, Trinity study had been published. So all we knew was to save as much as we could for as long as we could to figure out when we would have enough money to last the rest of our lives. It seemed at the time that the way to do that was to go to an active duty retirement. Of course, in retrospect, I know that's not necessary. We way overshot the mark on that. But I did know that we wanted to get financially independent as soon as we could. And at the year 2002, 20 years of active duty, Carol would be nine and a half years old, or as we called it, just entering the danger zone. That was our goal. So Carol, at nine and a half, you were old enough to be looking around at your friends and seeing what their families looked like. Did you notice that yours was different, that dad and mom maybe were around a little more? Very much so. I mean, not only was mom and dad around a lot more often, but they were also present. I didn't get the feeling that they had work on their mind. They weren't trying to slink off into the study to work on a few more emails in between meals. They weren't, you know, taking another phone call from the boss in the office instead of listening to what I had to say. So not only were they home more, but they were present. They were they were there to listen to me and talk with me and to be my parents. You know, it wasn't just about me, but it was about us as a family. I'll I'll also override and point out that there was a night that Carol doesn't remember as a baby sleeping in the uh, submarine command center while I was handling a medical evacuation for a boat out in the Western Pacific. We both ended up sleeping there that night and uh, starting the next day at the workplace. Yeah, and, and, and I remember not only, I don't remember that night, but what I do remember is being about five or six years old and the way that our house was situated, my window in my bedroom looked directly into dad's window in the study. Oh, yeah. And so I used to fall asleep seeing dad with, you know, that single lamp bulb on his face, you know, hunched over the computer, working out a few more work emails before he went to bed himself. Yep. 
So did you ever question like, why is my dad and mom not working? Or at least at that point, my dad not working while everyone else's dad is? Not really. And a lot of it had to do with mom and dad frequently talking to me about things as we went through life. You know, they explained to me that by the time they made it to 20 years in the Navy, they could be eligible for a pension. And because that pension check came every month, they didn't have to work anymore. They had an income and they didn't have to go work for it anymore. Doug, you started these conversations early, right? There's a lot of parents who feel like they shouldn't mention money to their kids at such a young age, but it sounds like Carol was hearing this from a pretty young age. There's a whole litany of myths that go around financial independence and and early retirement, as you know. And one of those myths is that you have to set a good example for your children by working at a job until you're old and gray and used up. The other myth is that they'll worry if you reach financial independence and you don't have a visible source of income, and they'll be afraid that you're going to run out of money before they successfully launch from the nest. The reality is that kids, they just want your time. They just want you to play with them when they're young. They just want to hang out with you a little bit before they become teenagers. And even when they're teenagers, they still want your wallet. They still want your car keys. They just don't want to be seen in public with you because that's embarrassing, but they still want your time. And so they don't really necessarily care where the money is coming from or how much you have or what's in the budget. They want to know that you've got enough. And we constantly talked about spending money. We have enough money in a budget for this. We have enough money to spend on that. We don't want to spend money on that other thing, but we could figure out a way to make that money work for that. We always talked about those choices. And it's ironic that we're talking about choices way back before Paula Pant came along with, you can afford anything, but you can't afford everything. Carol, it's cool to have your parents around when you're nine and a half. As a teenager, (laughs) it may be a little more complicated. Did you ever find yourself rebelling, thinking, man, I just wish they would be off at their jobs when I got home from school so I could get a little privacy? Well, that was the nice thing about having my own car and driving was instead of making my parents go away, I could go away. And that was a lot more interesting because it wasn't my house. But no, when it when it came to the teenage rebellion, I certainly wanted my own room and I had my own bedroom. So that was one way that I had my own space. But mom and dad also weren't very pushy. They always made it obvious that they were there when I asked for them. And there was times when I got myself in trouble and they had to come into my space. But other than that, it was a rather respectful way of having a teenager. Did you want to tell them the story about the uh, tourists by the school bus stop? Oh, so... As I was growing up, you know, dad retired when I was nine and a half years old. And within a year, I was going to the middle school. And then a few years later, I went to high school. And both schools have the same bus stop on the same corner. And that same corner, everybody has to drive up in my neighborhood to be able to get to the highway. And so as I'm getting older and older, dad is taking out more and more surfboards in this Taurus every day. And as he's driving by the bus stop, which happens to have a stop sign, you know, he has to stop at the stop sign, honk his horn. Hey, how you doing? Have a good day at school, honey. I'll see you when you get home. And I'm just like, I could be going to the beach right now, but I got to I gotta go to school and I got to go work and I got to go and I got I to gotta figure out a way to get into that lifestyle. Did the other kids look at you and go, how is your dad doing that? Oh, yes. But we were also unusual in that we were one of the, we weren't the only military family, but we were one of the few military families. So it was already known that we were a little bit different. Doug, Carol mentioned respect and I've noticed that you treated her with the respect and maturity of bringing up some of these adult subjects at a pretty early age, but you also then had to give her some space to learn and grow. Is that right? 
you have to have the opportunities to make mistakes when you're growing up. And we always felt like we were giving Carol more of the money to manage that we would be spending on her anyway to raise her. So we wanted her to have a chance to learn how to manage bigger and bigger sums of money. And those mistakes are a lot easier to recover from when you make them at home during high school or when you're a child than it is after college, your first job, when you have to start a 401k. So we knew from an early age, from her early age, that we'd have to start bringing her along a little at a time and build on those skills so that by the time she launched, she knew what she needed to do. Whether she decided to do it or not, that would become her challenge, but at least she'd have the basics. And Doug, you had to do one of those most difficult things that most of us parents actually fail at, which was allow Carol to make mistakes and not intervene and stop them before they happened. We talk a lot about our military experience. And one of the things you have to learn very soon in the military is that you have to train the person who's going to help take over your job as you get promoted and as you move on in your career. And so I was very accustomed to giving people responsibility for running things on a submarine and doing things that maybe even I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do, but I had to train them at it. And I don't mean to say that we raised our daughter like a sailor or a junior officer, but we knew the training techniques and you give everybody a little bit of responsibility and keep bringing it on until you feel that they're fully loaded. Or if they're not ready, you back off and you try again in six months with the thing that didn't work out so well the first time. We're, we're comfortable with that. And of course, you can see it's paid off. Actually, I have a story related to that. I'm Uh-oh. not sure if you remember this, Dad. Oh, uh, no. There was uh, one, this is back before smartphones and before you had a GPS on your cell phone. But we used to print out paper directions whenever we went downtown, just because the streets are very one way and hard to figure out. And you have to make sure you have the paper directions. And so Dad is driving. He's at the wheel. I'm sitting in the passenger seat. I must have been 12 or 13 years old at the time. And I just cannot keep up with the directions. You know, I missed the one way and I called it out four blocks too late. You know, I almost had dad going down the wrong way, a certain street. It, it was a mess. I, I was jittery. Dad was upset. Everything was going wrong. And we pulled over in the car and dad said, this, you're not doing this right. This is what you need to do to fix it. And you're going to keep doing this until you get this right. And I was like, wait, what? You're not going to kick me out of the seat? You're not going to fire me? He's like, no, I need you to learn how to do this. You need to learn how to navigate so that you can be, you're able to do this one day. We have all day. <laughs> and, and that's the approach that needs to be taken with money. It's kids are definitely going to mess up, but you got to be able to say, and you're going to keep doing this until you get this right. The website was MapQuest, right? I was trying to think about it the other oh, yes. day. Uh-huh. It was MapQuest. All right. Exactly. Can you tell us some of those early money mistakes? Do any of them stick out in your mind when you as a kid made a mistake and maybe were embarrassed yet learned from it? I'm thinking of the placemat. That Uh, was a big one. I'm thinking of the placemat and I'm thinking of the Dragon Ball Z card. Oh, no, no, the the Yu-Gi-Oh cards. The Yu-Gi-Oh, yes, Yu-Gi-Oh, thank you. Yeah, so right after Pokemon, there was something called Yu-Gi-Oh. And Yu-Gi-Oh was the, it was like the grown-up version of Pokemon. You know, Pokemon was just for middle, uh, elementary school, middle schoolers. Like Yu-Gi-Oh was like the high school, the next generation stuff. But the problem with Yu-Gi-Oh was that it was also way more expensive than Pokemon cards were at the time. So it, it took more money. And there was a, a lot of drama on my street. There were a lot of kids on my street that were trading Yu-Gi-Oh. And there was one day where someone snuck into someone else's garage and stole a bunch of Yu-Gi-Oh cards and everything just erupted into mayhem. That's when all the parents found out about how much the kids were trading money for these cards, how many people were getting, you know, cheated out of their money, how many people were in trouble or pulling, you know, stealing money from parents, it, it, it erupted. And so I was part of that ring because I was one of the kids in the street. I must have lost three or $400 of my own money just to what is now a bunch of pieces of cardboard paper with cool anime characters on it. You know, at, at this point, if I had put that $400 into the stock market or into the savings account, 
what could that have been instead? It could have led to a lot more. And you could see as these guys were getting involved in the Yu-Gi-Oh cards where this was going to end. Uh, Beanie Babies, cryptocurrencies, there's a bunch of analogies. But the key with us was that this money that she had saved and earned and was using on her own. We knew that if she was going to make a mistake, she would make it with her own money and she'd certainly learn from it. And as they say in the Navy, learning did occur and it was of tremendous training value. Yes. I was about to say, Doug, you didn't need to add any extra punishment, did you? Oh, the punishment was self-inflicted. No, I didn't need to do anything except sit back there. But it's very important as a parent, getting serious for a minute, it's very important to empathize with those mistakes as they occur. You want to help the person who's learning how to manage that money understand their emotions and their feelings and realize that they might have done this to themselves or it might have been bad luck, but this is how you feel when this happens and this is the way to recover from it and maybe you'll make better decisions and choices the next time. So I was there for that. But yeah, you could see the ending of this movie before you got even more than 10 minutes into the first reel. Carol, one of the most difficult lessons I think kids learn with money is shame. And when we connect money and shame together, the outcome is almost always bad. It sounds like shame is not something that you put together with money as a kid. Not necessarily. Of course, there were moments where I was shameful in what I had purchased, but it was about that journey of buying something, then feeling the remorse instead of shame, feeling the remorse, and then overcoming that remorse by learning your lesson from it. Doug, you seem amazingly intentional what you and Marge taught Carol. Did you have a resource or a book or a model you were following? We started out with just the things that we had heard from other parents or things that we had read in a newspaper. This was back before the World Wide Web took off, the learning the stuff that we were teaching Carol when she was very young. And eventually, in the early 2000s, a book came out. uh, It's called uh, The First National Bank of Dad. And it's about teaching kids about money. It's written by David Owen. A lot of his techniques really paid off. And so we, when we read that book, realized all the techniques we'd been fumbling toward were available here. For example, one of his most important things was to get you to understand the perspective of your kid. And he uses the analogy of giving a kid a a $5 bill and watching them run around the yard like they've got a 4th of July sparkler and they just light that thing on fire and wave it around and have a wonderful time as they're burning it. Now today, it's probably a $20 bill, but the whole point is that your kids have to make those mistakes with money when they're young. They make it in the safety of their own home with their family and somebody who's there to help them understand, to give them a safe sandbox to play in and learn these lessons. So it looks like, in retrospect, that we really knew what we were doing. But frankly, we were making stuff up as we went. There was a lot of trial and error. And I talk about in the book how much of that trial and error was error. And it all paid off as we began to find the ways that worked for her, the things that motivated her. And frankly, she learned the lessons pretty quickly, so we didn't have to repeat too many of the lessons. Carol, I'm also struck by this idea that Doug and Marge were military graduates, right? They had spent a lot of time in the military, and certainly some of the teaching seems to have a military bent. You then yourself got involved in the military. Were a lot of the lessons as you started in the military familiar because you had been brought up with them, especially in your financial teaching? A little too familiar. There was a good six-month period after I got my commission where I realized that I couldn't remember if I'd learned one of these things in my Navy training or growing up. I I couldn't remember who had taught it to me because it was so ingrained and it was so familiar that I could have sworn this was something before I even decided to join the military myself. And Doug, did you ever feel that there was pushback from Carol that at some point she looked at you and said, geez, dad, could you just be like everybody else? There were times when uh, there was pushback. There were a couple of things I remember that maybe 
didn't make a big deal to Carol at the time, but that I always look back on with a little bit of regret. One of them is just before I retired from active duty, we had figured out our finances. We realized we were financially independent. We were using the 4% safe withdrawal rate. We had a plan. We were on track. Everything was good. And then we had an opportunity to spend money for surfing lessons. At the time, it seemed like an outrageously, uh, ridiculously high amount of money to spend on surfing lessons. I think it was something like $50 per person, maybe for two hours. Mm -hmm. And there was no way I was going to throw that money away on something like that at a resort. So I, I argued, we argued back and forth. And of course, uh, being the uh, parent, I was able to argue uh, forcefully and aggressively and win yeah, sort of the argument. In retrospect, I regret that. If we had learned to surf back then, we would have been surfing that much more often. Three months later, when I retired, instead of spending $50 for surfing lessons, we found a place that did it for $5. So technically, I, I won a Pyrrhic victory there. But when I did that, I realized I'd just denied ourselves something out of the entertainment budget that really would have brought a lot of value to our lives. So there was pushback that time. She was right. I got to get that on recording. You actually yeah, said yeah. I was right. Carol, Wait a minute. Carol was right. Now let's make sure we get that one in the final product. Mm -hmm. Carol, did you ever feel like there was too much of a scarcity bent that you were being told over and over again, no, we can't do that? Not at all. Not at all. There was uh, certain things that people would see as scarcity. For example, people would say that we did a lot of thrift store shopping and people would look at us and say, well, why don't you just go to like, you know, Walmart? We didn't have Target at the time. Why don't you go to Walmart? Why don't you just go to Kmart? Why don't you go to some place that has bark and clothes? And the reality was that it didn't really matter. Either way, it, this was Hawaii. It was still going to be hot and you were still going to be sweaty and it was still going to be run through the laundry the same way that new clothes were. And so it didn't really seemed to make a difference either way. I mean, sure, something came off a store shelf that was brightly lit and it was well dusted versus the dusty back of the local Goodwill. But at the same time, it ended up in the same place. And, and it was choices. And so we would talk about all the choices. You could have that retail t-shirt for $25 or you could have five t-shirts from the thrift store for $5. Doug, as I mentioned in my introduction, I feel like modeling was a big part of my oh, introduction. Yeah. Tell me when you were bringing up Carol, were you thoughtful about that process of weighing modeling with, with didactic teaching and experiential learning? And how did you decide how much of each to do? Yes to modeling. And there's a couple of things going on behind that. Because when you start a family, you suddenly realize that this kid is going to imitate everything you do. And we all know that as parents, usually because we learn it the wrong way. But one of the things we learned financially was we really needed to model that good financial behavior whenever we could. And if we were going to make mistakes, we also had to explain that as well. And as she grew older, we started talking more and more about the choices we'd made or financial spending decisions we were making or why we found value in something. It was more about having a conversation about the ideas that go into the choices than it was about telling her what was right or what was wrong. And we kept on modeling that so that she could go through the same thought process. Do I really want to spend the money on this? How many hours of life energy do I want to trade to be able to afford this shiny object? That came up a lot in our house whenever there was an opportunity to earn money for something that looked a lot better than it actually turned out to be. Carol, I want to talk a little bit about the positives and drawbacks to your parents' methods of teaching you about finances. Let's start with some of the unintended positives. Tell me what it was like getting to the, you know, middle school and high school grades, having some of your financial savvy that you did and the learning you had as a younger kid. Did you find that school was a little bit easier? Yes and no. 
So at school, it was funny amongst the teachers because I was the kid running around with the checkbook that was writing all the registration checks. They're just like, wow, who is this kid? And so I, I had that you know positive first impression with the teachers. They knew that I wasn't going to be like every other kid. They didn't need to discipline me like every other kid. They recognized that I was thinking a little bit differently and I was acting a little bit differently. So if you treat me a little bit more maturely, I'll respond really well to that. And I, you know, I never realized that at the time because I'm just a kid. But in retrospect, I realized how important that was for teachers to, instead of standing back and yelling at me like some teachers would for other students, they would come in closer and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking you're doing wrong. Why don't you do this instead? And I would say, okay, and correct my course right there. The uh, drawback certainly was it, it made me weird. I was definitely that weird kid <laughs> running around with the checkbook who couldn't, you know, I couldn't go over to dad and say, hey, dad, can I have 10 bucks? Can I have 10 bucks? But dad, it's just 10 bucks from movie theaters. I, I couldn't do that. You just did not do that in the family. I'm sure there some many of the fine opportunities to earn revenue to afford those luxuries in life. And we discuss those opportunities whenever the $10 question came up. I was about to say, you could have the $10, but you're going to have to work for it. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That might've been said maybe one or 200 times. Uh-huh. Yeah. I imagine the other kids, some of them where the light bulb hadn't quite gone off, thought that since you now had checks, you could buy anything and do whatever you wanted with it. So I imagine that you had those fights too about explaining to people how you couldn't just go out and buy whatever you want. Oh, certainly. And it, and it has a lasting effect. You know, it, it starts in elementary school and middle school where it may be as innocent as a birthday present, but then it becomes a gift with every grade. And then after it becomes a gift with every grade, it becomes a gift with every new school semester. And all of a sudden, it becomes the kind of thing where almost at their whim, kids are getting whatever they wanted from their parents. And it could be because the parents were feeling guilty about something. You know, there's, there's two sides to the story, what the kid perceived and what the parent perceived. But to the kid's mind, they had their parents on their little finger and they could ask for whatever they wanted. And that's harder as you get older because if you set up that expectation young of kids can just ask and demand, well, when they become more mature and they have to work for things, they don't recognize that there's a give and take. All they've been doing is taking and they don't know to give. I'll point out another issue too, is that if your child is the only child at middle school who whips out her checkbook to pay for all the registration fees and the lunch fee and the school bus tickets and everything else, the other kids pay attention to that. And they go home and tell their parents, Carol has a checkbook. When do I get my checkbook? And then all the other parents will eventually try to figure out who this guy Nordman is and come and discuss this because they want to know what's going on. The other thing that becomes apparent when you're not going to a job every day is that you have the time to be the volunteer student coordinator for whatever. And in my case at the school, I was usually one of the chaperones for the field trips. And that conversation was on the bus. Maybe every trip we made with at least one of the teachers, how come you're not at work today? What can you do? How do we do that? And so it was pretty clear by the time Carol was well on her way through middle school and getting into high school, who this Nordman kid was, I think the word went out ahead of her arrival to let him know that she was coming up the ladder. And other parents and other kids in the neighborhood were also learning a little bit about being financially savvy just from hanging out at our place, being around Carol and being around us. Doug, let me push back a little bit. There are many who will say, well, why don't we just let kids be kids, right? They can always learn about finances as they're older. Why start so young? Oh, no, absolutely. I agree with that. And some of that might be my own mentality growing up and not really understanding money, not really understanding my finances. And and frankly, for most of my life, I had a scarcity attitude. It took a long time for me to shift to abundance that I have today. Part of it too, though, is that kids want to learn. And so you can let a kid be a kid. They can still have fun. They can still play with things. 
So if one of those things happens to be a life skill, like financial independence or learning how to build wealth or learning how to just buy an ice cream cone at McDonald's, you make it age appropriate and you try something. And if they like it, that's great. If they try it and they hate it, well, maybe you come back to it in a few months. One example of that is you may feel like your kid is going to be the next Warren Buffett and be a brilliant investor, only to find out that when you start teaching them how to invest or show them what goes on in a stock market or mutual funds, maybe they don't care. And that might be the beginning of somebody who's only going to invest in passively managed index funds from Vanguard for the rest of their life. So there's always some kind of learning occurring from that. And you just look for those opportunities. I call those the teachable moments when they're ready to learn something and you happen to have an analogy that will relate to money. In the first half of the show, Doug and Carol describe what life was like financially growing up in the Nordman household. After the break, we tackle the various pros and cons of trying to bring up financially savvy kids. But first, shopping for disability insurance is complicated enough. Wondering if you are getting the best prices and discounts while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. At Pattern, they simplify disability insurance for busy doctors so they can feel confident they have the right policy and their income is protected. Getting coverage while you are still in training could save you thousands over your career, so don't miss out on these training program discounts for residents and fellows. Get started today by requesting free quotes at patternlife.com slash partner slash earn and invest, and be confident you have the right policy at the best price. You can find the link in our show notes, patternlife.com slash partner slash E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Carol, one of the benefits we have from learning from our parents is we get to try to do just that much slightly better with our own kids. (laughs) As you are thinking back to how your parents raised you, are there any intentional differences that you're going to try with your own child? I know that, that she's just seven weeks old. It's a little bit early for that. But as you're thinking back and as you wrote this book, were there some things that you looked back and said, yeah, I probably would do this a little differently? There are a few things, but there's nothing specifically yet because my daughter is still developing her own personality. I know that every kid is different. And to say that the exact same technique will work the exact same way on every kid is delusional. And so I know that there's going to be some subtle changes to the way that I do things. You know, I might introduce some things to my girl sooner than dad introduced to me. You know, there might be some things that are going to be later, but it's going to be partially dictated by her. It's not necessarily about my opinion and how I was raised. It's going to be a little bit about what she's going to be as a person as well. 
I am pretty confident that she's not going to drive by the school bus stop with a longboard strapped to her roof rack while her daughter's watching her go to the beach. Doug, speak a little bit, though, to that, what she just mentioned, this idea that each kid has their own personality. Was it challenging putting this book together, knowing that kids are different and they respond to different things? Oh, absolutely. You have to write for a much larger audience. One, one of the things we did early on in the book in the introduction is point out that these are things that work for us. We tried a bunch of stuff and here's what worked, but your kid is different and what worked for us might not work for you. Here's a bunch of methods you can try in the hopes that something will stick and that your kid will light up. And one of the examples we use is the part about investing. David Owen made the same point in his book about the First National Bank of Dad, where his older son immediately grabbed onto the stock market and started learning about companies and buying shares. And he thought this was wonderful. His daughter was, and today I begin to recognize she's probably the smarter one of the bunch. His daughter was just not interested. She didn't mind investing. She didn't mind watching the, the money grow. She, was, she understood all that, but she didn't need to chase down shares of Disney stock if she could invest in a good index fund. Carol, I'm reminded of the last or one of the first podcasts, I should say, that I did with Doug and J.L. Collins and his wife, Jane. And J.L. was discussing that his daughter, Jessica, didn't necessarily take to all his interest in personal finance. It's one of the reasons he started writing his blog. How will it feel to you if your daughter has no interest in this stuff? There would be an element of concern because naturally as a parent, you feel that everything you're telling your kid is going to be the most important thing that your kid should ever know. <laughs> That's how it was with us. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. But then, you know, the, the, the old need to remember how it feels to be young. You know, she may not like it right away and she may not ever like it, but she might find some other method, some other compromise that works just as well. Doug, I want to transition a little to this process of writing the book. You've written a book and a pocket guide already about personal finance and the military path to financial independence. How do you think the process was different and changed by writing this book with your daughter? The, the second book is a lot easier for somebody who's written the first book. <clears throat> so I already knew what I wanted to do in the outline, and I already had an idea of what I wanted to put into the chapters. And as you know, I probably uh, recycled uh, half a dozen blog posts into stories and chapters in the book. So that worked very well for me. It was interesting also trying to uh, work with another author. You always worry about what we call in the movie business creative differences and whether or not this was going to be a good idea. Frankly, I, I didn't even know if Carol and I could get along long enough to get this first draft pumped out, let alone go through the editing process. So I've approached this as a co-author, but also as a parent. For example, I made sure that she wrote whatever she wanted to write without any judging for me because it's her story and we need to have her voice there. Frankly, I think that there are going to be more buyers who resonate and who get value from her voice than from mine. So I wanted to make sure we protected the more important of the two authors and making sure that that voice came through in the book. We also found out that the technology behind co-authoring a book has gotten a lot easier in the last few years. When I emailed my first draft of my part of the first chapter of the book to her as a Word document attached to an email, I got back the response of, well, Dad, this is cute, but here's the link to the Google Docs. Now we can write together. And Carol, was it a little strange hearing his side of your childhood written down for you to read? Did it feel like your story or did it feel like he was telling someone else's story? 
It actually felt familiar because I could see it from my eyes as a kid. And then as an adult reading these stories, it's like, okay, I can, I can understand the, the mature logic behind it. And so it wasn't all that unfamiliar. Did you realize how intentional your parents were in bringing you up in this way? We, we hid that pretty well. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually didn't know the, I, I thought that every single step was something that came out of a manual for them. I didn't realize how much of it had just been the two of them sitting together in the living room and having a conversation. And it was, there's a lot of things that Dad mentioned in the book where it started out as a family meeting where it was him and mom sitting together and figuring out, well, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? How is she going to behave to this? And then as I got older, you know, those, those family meetings, I would start to interject into them more and more. You know, mom and dad would maybe start the meeting together in the living room and I would come out of my room on my way to somewhere else in the house and plop down and have the next 20 minutes of conversation with them. And so it, it transitioned from just being mom and dad to mom and dad and me to hearing about the things that I wasn't around for in the first place. I'll also point out, we come back to this theme over and over in the book, is that we weren't necessarily just making stuff up, but we were certainly trying a lot of approaches we would sit down at the end of the day and say, hey, Carol did this and she wants to do that. And the response would be, boy, we've got to get out in front of this. We've got to figure out a way to make this a teachable moment. And so out of those conversations, we'd eventually come up with a couple of ideas and we'd try something. You experienced parents know that when you come up with two choices for your children at any age, they're going to come up with a third choice and maybe a fourth choice. So that was always a thrill to find out during the family meeting how it was really going to work out. Doug, talk a little bit about the transition to adulthood. You reference a letter you wrote to your daughter when she started college. How did your tactics change as she went from more or less a child living in your household to a growing adult? There's a book by Marjorie Savage, and it's called You're on Your Own, But I'm Here If I Need You, and it's full of advice for college. And the whole theme behind her advice to parents is that if you were a parent and your child brought home a high school exchange student from a foreign country, you'd be fascinated by who this other person is. You'd want to know all about them. You'd want to understand their fashion, their clothes, their hairstyle. You'd want to understand their culture. And then she extends that analogy and says, this will be the child that you raised coming home for Christmas break after their first semester. They might've discovered goth, sleeve tattoos, piercings, and other exotic lifestyle alternatives at college. And wouldn't you like to get to know that person as a new human being, as somebody to be a new friend with? So we looked at that approach. And frankly, a lot of this comes from what you mentioned earlier, the uh, tactic of I'm going to raise my kid better than I was raised or revenge parenting. I never really understood what the rules were when I was in college with things that I was supposed to do with my parents. So we just wanted to lay that rule book out for Carol and make sure she understood where we were coming from. And, and that wasn't us giving her the Ten Commandments of college. That was us saying, here's what we think this should be like. Let us know if we should do anything different with our ways of talking or privileges or things like that. So it made it really clear to her what we thought would be the next step. And it was part of responding to her as a young adult and getting to know this new person who was going to come home totally changed from what she had been only a few months earlier. And, and it turned out that's exactly what happened. Carol, how did it feel to get that letter? I've read through it. Certainly it's kind and gentle, but fairly prescriptive. There's, <laughs> there's definitely a feeling of, okay, kid, it's on you now. How did it mm-hmm. feel to get it? That was actually a huge relief. When you're in college, you meet kids of all sorts of backgrounds. And some of those kids happen to be from the same town as the university. 
And so you you hear about them coming home every week and you hear about the little changes that are at home. Oh, mom won't do my laundry anymore. Oh, my parents say I have to go get my own credit card now. And you, you kind of start to wonder, okay, what's waiting for me if I haven't been home in six months? And so it was really <laughs> nice to, to have that email from mom and dad that said, here are the rules. There are no rules, but we suggested you do some safe and mature things. It's like, oh, thank God. Okay. So I'm not going to walk home and have all these things that have changed on me all in one go. And it was nice to to get that forewarning email, to, to have that email to read ahead of time so that I didn't walk into a totally cold situation trying to figure out what was going on. I'll, I'll amplify that, that we, the parents, didn't want to be the authority figures. We wanted her to be internally motivated by college and to adopt whatever standards the university had and pick up her own life values. So we didn't want her to feel like she was rebelling against anything at home. We wanted her to feel like she was not just internalizing our values, if that's what she was doing, but extending them and coming to her own values out of that. And so as parents, it was kind of nice to be able to say, we're not going to have any rules when you get home, but you don't want to have to explain this to the university as an arrest record or making bail when you go back. So be careful down in Waikiki in two in the morning. Doug, you're very clear about transitioning your role as to trusted advisor. Tell me about that change. Is that something we as parents all should be doing with our college-age kids? Well, I I originally, in my mind, thought that that was going to be the day that when she left for college or started her own life or, frankly, finally left the nest, that, that, that day when she's totally off the payroll, I thought there'd be a switch flipped and I would stop being dad and I would turn into a coach or a mentor. And it would be just like a mastermind group that we have for bloggers or writers or other creatives. Of course, that didn't work out. Yeah, I'm, apparently, I'm always going to be dad. And I've got more people calling me dad today than ever before. And now I've got one that's someday going to call me granddad, right? So that apparently is a life sentence with no parole, no time off for good behavior. And that's all a very good thing. I just didn't understand that. However, we all have those conversations still. We still have family meetings. And now that she's a young adult going out there and making her own choices and making her own decisions, she knows that she can still touch base, ask us what the rules are, what she should be thinking of, what she should be doing. I don't have to tell her anymore, don't do that. It was never very successful to begin with, so why, why do it? But I do have the ability to say, well, here's what could happen. Here's what happened to us. Here's what happens to other people. And as, as an author and as a blogger and as an advisor and a, a person who's helping military families figure out their finances, I can say, here's what my readers are telling me. Here's what people just like you are telling me about this situation and how it will work out. And so that's the coaching and the mentoring that's going on today. And it's, you know, it's a lot easier for her to get my attention to ask those questions, but it's the same advice that I give to just about anybody else in the military or any other military family that has questions about finances or, or about lifestyle. Carol, one thing that your parents have let you know is part of the reason that they have been paying so much attention to teaching you about finances and helping you adult is that someday you may be a steward to their finances. Does that feel like pressure to you? Is that something you worry about? Or are you pretty comfortable one day taking over that role if necessary? I actually feel more comfortable taking over that role one day if necessary. Most of this started when I was coming out of high school, going into college, and I was in my own world, as most teenagers are, when dad started dealing with my grandfather's estate and the the complications that come with Alzheimer's and, and having a lifetime of different accounts, both before the internet and after the internet. 
it, it was a relief to not really discuss the estate plan until I was old enough to understand what an estate plan was. So that wasn't a conversation that started up until maybe high school at the earliest. But at the same time, it was very good to have that discussion while mom and dad were still in the right mind. And I was in a, a, a quieter place. You know, I didn't have kids running around yet. I didn't have a full-time job that I was trying to balance with the state plan. It was, it was good to have that in the early years of adulthood. I'll, I'll chime in with the perspective on that is that my grandfather, my father's father, ended up being deep into dementia before anybody realized what the problems were. And it took my father years to figure out the financial situation of his father and fix things and take over his finances. And for 20 years, dad told us boys that he wasn't going to do to us what he had done, had done to his, by his father until it happened. And then that was the third generation that we were going through this problem with Alzheimer's, dementia, whatever the syndrome was. And it wasn't enough to tell Carol, oh, no, we're not going to do that to you. And, and, and this time we really mean it. We felt like we had to take some serious steps to show her exactly what we were putting into place in our state plan. And frankly, it was a stretch for, for myself and my wife. We had uh, some fairly intense conversations about what our estate planning was going to look like and who was going to be able to step in and how this was going to work. But it has turned out to be a tremendous relief. Essentially, and we joke about this, but we, we tell our daughter, it, it's not about you. It's about mom and dad. And we want you to take over our finances because we finally have somebody who knows what they're doing and we trust them. And so we want you to see what's coming and be able to handle it when it's time. You've had a lifetime of training of managing bigger and bigger sums of money. So if you do have to manage our finances for us, then you'll be ready to do it. Of course, I'm pretty sure she gets a significant sense of relief out of seeing this multi-generational bag job stopping at me and not falling onto her shoulders. Yeah, sometimes it's just easier to manage things head on too than to continue that cycle of denial that we're so great at, especially when we're talking about our own mortality. And we've just done that other podcast episode on having those conversations with mom and dad. And those lessons learned were not going to be learned all over again in our household. Carol, I want to transition a little bit here. Sometimes it's hard for me to separate the lessons and teachings about financial independence from bringing up money savvy children. How much of this story is a financial independence story? I would say that. There's no set percentage to how much of it is a financial independence story. The natural next step to being money savvy is financial independence. It's the idea that you have not only taken the class and you have understood the concepts that mom and dad have raised me with, but it's understanding that you could be in the point one day where you don't need to have to work anymore. You could be at the point where you're super rich and you don't have to go to a, a wage earning job anymore. But at the same time, it's understanding that being on that super yacht isn't necessarily going to make you happy. <laughs> And so that that's financial independence is is really tied into money savviness. It's not something you have to do because financial independence doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean that you have to stop doing the things that you love, but it means that you finally have the ability to make the decisions you want to make and live the life you want to live. And you're not tethered to whatever desk you think that you have to be at to earn that income. And And as we started saying more than 20 years ago, you have choices. Oh, yes. Doug, did you and Marge ever think about separating the messages? Was there ever a point in your brain that you said, well, maybe we'll be confusing it by getting in all this financial independence stuff. Let's make her financially responsible first, and then maybe it'll be more of a graduate course. 
Absolutely. You build up from the, the basic building blocks. You try something. And there were many things we tried where it would be a miserable failure. And we'd say, okay, that didn't go any way that we thought it was going to go. And we would step back, put it away for six months, and then try it again or wait for signs that she was ready to try again. So it is a very much an iterative process. And you also want to start out with the idea of being financially savvy before you go and, and start talking about life energy and money and those great big existential existence questions. So you have to have those building blocks before you can start getting into that. Having said all that, I'll point out that the most powerful way to develop the motivation for financial independence in your money family is when they see you model it. And when they have to go off to school every morning because that's their job and know that mom and dad are staying at home and playing all day, then they're motivated to learn more about this money savvy stuff. I'd say that's pretty good motivation. <laughs> oh, it worked like crazy. I you think. really tortured her with that surfboard, didn't you? Well, oh, yes. there, there's another side of this that was uh, worrisome to me. You can probably tell by looking at your camera that she is very much my daughter, and that goes a way deeper than just the facial features. But one of the other things that I've always been a sucker for, uh, especially in the military, has been extra money. And if I was doing something that I didn't hate doing in the first place and the Navy was to offer to pay me another 20 or 30% on top of my base pay to do it, I would grab that hook and put it in my mouth and run with it. And and those submarine bonuses that I, I took at the time, they weren't much of a problem until we'd started a family. And then suddenly I realized I'd obligated myself to a situation that I no longer wanted to be in and I couldn't just change the terms of the contract. And so we have taught her to manage relatively larger sums of money at a relatively young age so that now that she's at that point in her Navy career where large bonus sums start getting dangled in front of her, she's smart enough to put that into perspective of life energy, what she wants to do with herself, whether this is something she would want to have anyway, instead of having to say, gosh, I need that money to pay off my student loans, my credit card, my truck payment. And the the other side that most people don't tell you about military bonuses is that if you don't complete the job, the bonus is taken back. And so if you sign a contract saying, I will do a certain number of years, and for some reason something goes wrong and you're unable to complete that contract, depending on how things went wrong, you might have to give back that money. And so it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword because first you took the, the, the hook, like Dad said, you took the hook, <laughs> and you probably spent the money already. And now what are you going to do if you have to pay that money back? Doug, were there any areas in the book that you intentionally stayed away from? Obviously, there are tons of topics you could have touched on, things maybe like career you decided not to put much time into in the book. Tell me, were there things that you were like, okay, we're just, it's too big of a subject, we're not going to put that in this book? I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Was there anything that was off the table that we weren't going to discuss? No, not really. No. I, I would say that the things that are, are left out of the book are as a result of the editing process. So when the copy editor or the line editor or the developmental editor looked at it, they said, yeah, this is a good story, but it's not really right on the storyline. It's not really your main thrust of what you want to communicate. And you're not going to write a 500-page book about this. So we would edit things out. Of course, being experienced authors now, we know that anything that doesn't happen to be in the book, we're going to put that into a blog post. So the story will continue and there will be much more bonus material on the website. We're also trying to figure out exactly what other uh, extras we can put into the audiobook. Uh, my sense is that audiobooks are going to be at least as big as the ebook or the print version of the book. And so we want to have something for an audience in the audiobook to motivate them to look at that. But I don't think anything was off limits. I think the the, the biggest surprise I had 
was writing a section of the book where I talked about how in my brilliant financial parenting tactics, I would find the books that would make an impact on my daughter's financial knowledge. And I'd occasionally leave one of those books in her bedroom for her to read because I assumed that if it meant something to me, it would mean something to her. And I'm only giving her, you know, one out of every 10 or 20 books I read. So this is a good book for her to learn from. And it wasn't until I read her very next section of the story of that chapter that I realized she never read them. So today I've learned to keep it light and short. There's blog posts, there's YouTube videos, there's podcasts. I'm no longer sending her 400 page books uh, on asset allocation. So Carol, unfortunately, we are a society that needs sound bites. We want to get to the bottom of things quickly. So for those listening to us right now who want a soundbite, can you clarify a few of the main takeaway points that people will get from raising your, raising your money savvy family? What, what can you condense a few main topics or ideas down that people will learn about? One of the main factors in money is time. And the more time you have, the better things are. You have to start things early. You have to start teaching kids about money because they're still young in life. And just as you start teaching kids how to brush their teeth at a young age, just as they learn about how to look both ways before crossing the street, they need to learn about money as soon as they are capable of understanding what a coin is, what a dollar is. And Doug, did she get it just about right? Anything to add? Start them young and make all those mistakes at home where you have a chance to recover. I'm wondering, Carol, looking back at all those kids you grew up with, how does your financial trajectory now as an adult compared to theirs? It's a, it's a whole different atmosphere, stratosphere. I'm not sure exactly. It's huge, very different. A huge bell curve. It's very different. Yeah. What's interesting is every time mom and dad come to visit or I hear from them on the phone, I also hear about how the other kids are doing in the neighborhood. And everybody's doing very different things. There's a couple of us that joined the military, but even our military paths are very different. There's a few kids that are still hanging around the neighborhood. You know, they never left home. And then there are other kids that are some measure in between where they're not quite serving overseas, but they're in and around my home state working at a good job and having good life. And Doug, is there a brand new or maybe a used set of plastic coins waiting for your granddaughter somewhere in the house? Well, there could be. Uh, It all depends on what we find at the next garage sale or down at the Goodwill, but there certainly will be one day. And we're also starting this on a new generation of kids growing up on our street. So Grand Doug and Grand Marge are actually Uncle Doug and Uncle Marge practicing our, uh, our covert financial savvy skills on the neighborhood four and six-year-olds so that when our granddaughter's old enough that we're ready to do that with her. I was about to say, Carol, technology is in a much different place than it was when you were a little kid. I imagine with your daughter, uh, there will be all sorts of apps and programs and blogs and podcasts, things that just were not available to us when we were kids. Exactly. And there's also the dark side of that. There's also a lot of apps that you don't want your kids to spend a lot of money on. There's a lot of blogs that you don't want your kids to waste their time on. You know, there's a lot of things that you don't want your kids to get into as well. I'm going to end this conversation by just saying that there are a lot of tactical conversations in this book. And I've specifically steered away from them because with you guys, I wanted to talk about philosophy, but I wanted to assure everyone that by reading this book, you can learn a lot of specifics about how to introduce these concepts to your children and bring up responsible, thoughtful kids when it comes to money. 
I'd like to end the podcast the way I always end the podcast by first asking Doug, what is up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to learn more? I'm pretty sure there's another dirty diaper somewhere waiting to be changed, uh, but we're about to spend another couple of weeks here enjoying our granddaughter and then we'll go back to Oahu. We have a couple more financial conferences this summer. And of course there's FinCon 20 in Long Beach in September. And you can find me at the Military Guide website. You can uh, Google my name, Doug Nordman. Both of those will get me up. I've been blogging for 10 years and I'm pretty highly ranked in the search engines for those keywords. And if we would like to hear from readers who are trying these things in their families, please email us. Let us know what works. Yeah, sure. But please let us know what doesn't work and we'll make sure we can figure it out. And Carol, what is up next in your life and where can we find you? Well, once dad finishes with his dirty diaper, I'm sure she'll come out with another dirty diaper for me. So we'll just each take our own share of the dirty diapers. I'm still working on bringing up and running up on a website slash blog. It's not quite ready yet. So in the meantime, the best place to reach me is going to be on Facebook. Just search my name, Carol Pittner. You'll be able to message me and find me in a bunch of the different financial groups. And where do you see your career going? I know you've pulled back on the military a little bit. What do you think is your future career or not career for that matter? That's a good question. I'm still sitting in the middle of the crossroads. And because there's a good chance that we're already financially independent, I don't necessarily have to choose a fork right now. You know, we're, we're part of the reason we're in Monterey, California is because my husband is working on his master's degree. And once that job is complete, then there'll be another job after that. And so we'll, we'll see where that next assignment takes us. And in the meantime, I'm going to be very happy just having the chance to be at home with my daughter. I'm actually really thrilled that I don't spend all my time at work nowadays. So if you had any questions about the benefits of bringing up a financially savvy child, hearing Carol say that she's already financially independent has to give you a clue of what it does to your trajectory. If I may ask, Carol, how old are you? I am 27. I'll be turning 28 later this year. Wow. That's impressive. It's all about a high savings rate. And I think I'm going to end it on there. It is all about a high savings rate. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. I'd like to thank Carol Pittner and Doug Nordman. The book is Raising Your Money Savvy Family and will be coming out when, Doug? Later this spring. It's uh, in formatting and cover design right now. So I figure two, three more months. We'll make sure everybody knows the date. This is early March, so two to three months will put us in the June-July timeframe. I can't wait to see it, and I know it will be very worthwhile for all of you to pick up. That's a wrap. So, you know, one of the best parts of this podcast is actually to talk to listeners, people who listen to this podcast and become part of the community. So I'm really excited today to have Patrick. He's from Northern Ireland, and he wrote me with a bunch of questions about one of our episodes. And so I figured, why send him an email when we could just record a short segment and discuss it here for everyone to listen to? So Patrick, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Hey, Doc. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So what time is it there at Northern Ireland right now where you live in Belfast? It's uh, coming up to 10 p.m. 10 p.m. After a long, long day on a Friday. All right. Yeah. So it's 4 p.m. for me. So I'm here in Chicago. We're a ways away. So you had recently listened to one of the shows and it affected you. It was the show about whether money will make you happy. What was it about that show that struck a chord for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I, I listened to it the... The first time, whenever it was initially released, um, like 
I don't know if it was months or years ago, um, heard it then and definitely struck a chord. And I guess I hadn't actually really thought about it or just been mixed up in daily stuff. Then obviously the, the re-release came and just listened to it again. And obviously you kind of had a bit of an intro to it in terms of your own journey and financial independence. And you talking is pretty much exactly where I am right now, or at least it's where I feel I am. I've been having this ongoing kind of battle with purpose or meaning. It's just kind of, it, it developed out of nowhere. I'm usually someone that's very uh, disciplined, very scheduled, but I was having these episodes, say every six months or so, where the wheels were kind of just falling off. And I, I was able to keep on going and push through for weeks and weeks. And usually in prior times when that happened, usually I would kind of get out of the funk and would be able to push on and forward, but it just wasn't working. And then my daughter was born just over a year ago. And when that happened, it was just the same feeling on steroids and uh, basically just has not gone away since. Um, so I, I don't know, I, I've kind of referred to it as kind of like a crisis of meaning. I, I feel like, although I'm not financially independent, I feel like I have the money situation kind of solved. It, you know, it's, it's going to take me a few years, but the real issue for me was trying to shortcut my thinking to if I was financially independent right now, what would that change for me? What would I do? Would I be working on something different? Would I be living somewhere different? Trying to shortcut my thinking there, I'm, I guess, being pretty unsuccessful to this point um, in terms of getting there. And yeah, the, the email was largely around that, how you managed to deal with that situation. You kind of explained a little bit about that in terms of your creative outlet. I think that's probably something I need to do, but it's just not sure on direction right now, really. I think you are facing something that is so common and I hit that wall too. The problem with making your personal finances or financial stability or even financial independence, the problem with making that a goal is most of us don't realize that within six months to a year of studying up and learning and reading and looking at our finances, most of us can at least put a plan in place to get where we want to go. And because we made that a goal, it almost blocks you from thinking about everything else. We almost forget that the money itself is just a tool to do what we really want to do in life. But you forget about that all, what do I want to do in life, and get so focused on the money. I was right there with you. And it really caused a crisis in my life. And it was funny, one day I was reading Reddit. and. I saw this post by this guy who wrote, he's like, I've got my finances in order. I'm going to be financially independent in two years. Everything is set. I don't have to think about it anymore. The money comes directly out of my account every month and goes into investments. And he's like, and I'm miserable and I'm depressed and I just don't feel a reason for living anymore. And that really struck a chord with me. And I think that's almost the same chord you struck with me when you wrote that email it was something I definitely felt money is this great problem until it's not a problem anymore. And then life becomes the problem. And maybe that's a negative way to think about it as a problem, but 
you can't exist on money alone and you can't exist on work alone per se, unless that's your passion. So a big issue is to figure out what is your passion. I've been pretty open on this podcast about talking about how my passion ended up being communicating, writing, podcasting, public speaking. It sounds like you're stumbling with that issue right now. What are your meaning, purpose, and identity outside of the money issue? Is that a a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. It's a fair statement. Whenever I came to financial independence or the the kind of movement, it it was actually a very long time ago. I think it was back 2011, 2012. Maybe a bit of backstory would help. So I was living and working in London at the time, um, working for an investment bank wasn't in love with the work, but had graduated at a university a couple of years. And my girlfriend at the time, now wife, developed like a chronic illness. She ended up having to drop on university and move back home to Northern Ireland. Uh, she was in Scotland at the time. So that kind of prompted a lot of thinking in terms of, oh, maybe she'll never be able to work again. I kind of need to prepare for this. And that was when I kind of discovered Mr. Money Mustache and things like that. So as I said, I wasn't in love with the work. Started diving into that a little bit in terms of, okay, what, what should I do from this point? And came across the likes of Cal Newport. Don't know if you're familiar with him and so good they can't ignore you. For lack of a better direction of heading, went with his argument there, which was, okay, doesn't matter. You don't need to feel passionate about something right now. Just pick something, build important skills. And as long as they're valuable to an employer, they'll they'll pay you well. And if you're irreplaceable, you can use that flexibility to create a better life for yourself. So basically, that's what I did. Read up on the finances, sorted that part, pushed myself in the direction that I picked. And I guess the reason that it's a problem now is that I'm probably towards the top end of my field, reached a bit of a glass ceiling. So finances aren't going to improve wildly from this point. And yeah, I'm towards the top end now when the problems are supposed to get a bit more interesting and you're supposed to be a bit more passionate about it. And I, I just don't, don't feel it's the case at all. So yeah, it's interesting. It was, I guess, from that perspective back in 2011, money was the problem and that was the thing I needed to solve. I guess now we're maybe well after the pandemic's hit it's maybe not 50 percent fi but it's kind of around those numbers so we'll we'll coast there and the last couple of years for me have been about as i said before shortcutting that thinking and you know reading and hearing stories about people that reach their number essentially they get to a totally different place they start working in another field and you know they're still earning income so there's no reason for me to wait till that time. I'd much rather just do that now, whether it's you know less financially compensated. That's totally fine with me. I'm, I'm more interested in doing something that's kind of aimed at a social good anyway. So it's just trying to rework things. And I've kind of described it as uh, losing my North Star. Like I, I kind of, I know that the journey will be messy no matter what I do, but. I kind of need that loose direction to head for. And right now it's just just not there, unfortunately. So what I hear you saying is that you've got this place of financial stability where you're like, I don't even mind putting off retirement. Maybe I want to go a little slower, but I want to find something I enjoy doing and I feel a little passion about. So I don't mind working 10, 15, 20 more years. In fact, it gives you part of that purpose in life. 
I have some very concrete pieces of advice for you on how to find what gives you a little bit more meaning and purpose. But before I give you those pieces of advice, what have you done so far? Like, what have you tried to find what would be meaningful for you or what would fulfill you more so that you could transition to that lifestyle? Have you taken any steps yet? Yeah, it's taken a couple of steps just in terms of exploration of different fields, really. So the angle I've been pushing is more so that I think I'm that personality that will always work and always need a craft of some description to improve that. So recently, the the, the ideas have kind of been through have been data science. So there's things like Kaggle that do like competitions that are open to anyone, lots of tutorials and stuff like that. So messing around with that a little bit, pretty interested in that as a field. And actually, I've been in my current role for about two years now. Part of that move, there was a number of reasons actually, which which have weirdly turned out to be quite sensible in terms of it was a big organization, very stable, and I thought the economy would start sliding. So big and stable seems like a good idea. It's, it's a good idea right now, but not really for the reasons I thought it was going to be a good good idea. So part of that move was basically I would get exposure to more of the data science, data analytics side. So it made, made sense for a bunch of reasons other sides have been cybersecurity and things like that. So it's largely just been digging into little projects for myself and using my network to find people that do roles that I'm potentially interested in and kind of just doing informational interviews, also getting them to recommend next steps for me and, and doing things like that. So a little bit of exploring, but I guess I hope that something would feel a little bit more tangible or I'd feel a bit more of a pull towards something at this point and I, and I don't think that's happened so it kind of I think I read it somewhere where someone said you know if you don't have a purpose your purpose is to find your purpose essentially so just just keep trying things. So let me tell you I am by no means an expert in any of this but I can at least tell you what my experience has been and first and foremost I think our purpose and meaning in life can change depending on where we are and what stage of life. So you don't have to start worrying about finding that one purpose or meaning or identity because even that may evolve or change over time. But helping find what are parts of your purpose and identity are really important. And so let me give you some very specific advice, at least for what worked for me. And so I think there are three main pieces of advice. The first is you need to find a way to quiet your body and your mind. That's piece one. Piece two is you have to say yes to a lot of things. And piece three is that you have to distill down what you like into your job, distill away everything you don't like, and get it down to the most component part that you do like. So let me go back and explain all these these three things. So first, calming your mind and your body I needed to write every day, probably for a good year, to sort out how I was feeling about life, how I was feeling about my finances, and how I wanted to view the world. And I did it publicly, so I wrote on a public blog. Uh, And at that time, it was almost an accountability journal. But I will tell you that life change for me at least happens only with creativity. 
And usually that's writing. And maybe writing isn't for you. Maybe it's getting a tape recorder and talking into it 30 minutes a day. Uh, Maybe it's something else creative. Maybe for you, it's drawing or painting. Whatever it is, take some creative activity that makes you think a lot and make a habit of it every day or every other day and do it for months on end. So for me, writing was great because I could really sort out how I felt about life and what made me excited and not excited. So for me, it was writing every day. For you, it might be something else creative, but I think you have to calm your brain a little bit and that's the way. I think you also have to calm your body. So people do that in different ways. The easy way that people always talk about is meditation. So I'm amazed at how much clarity doing five or 10 minutes of meditation a day can bring, even if I that time is spent not thinking about anything profoundly, but trying to actually create the absence of thought. I don't think it has to be meditation for everybody. Exercise does it for someone. So go take a good 30-minute jog on a regular basis or whatever you like to do that makes you sweat and work. Another one that I often use is classical music. Like I never liked classical music until my kids took up violin. And now I found that listening to classical music for 30 minutes really calms my brain. So calm your brain, and it actually really calms my body too. So calm your brain, calm your body. I think that's a start. I think the next thing you have to do is say yes to a lot of stuff. So when you don't know what your purpose and identity are, and you don't know what really lights up your soul, the only way to find out is to get a lot of new experiences. So I'm the first person to always say no to new experiences. Like I'm not open to a huge number of new experiences, but just like you agreed to come on this podcast and talk to me, which I'm sure is a new experience and very strange for you, start saying yes to things. Start going out to community meetings. Start doing things you wouldn't do. Join a Zoom call for something from your university, right? Whatever. Find something that's totally out of character and start saying yes. Now, granted, you can't say yes to everything, but if you start opening yourself up to the world around you, you're much more likely to find out what you like because you probably don't know yet. And so for me, I started this podcast with Paul Thompson. It wasn't my original idea. He actually came to me and said, hey, you need to do this. And a bunch of people in my life said, hey, you should do a podcast. And it was part of my willingness to say, okay, that feels a little funny. And I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I know nothing about it. Maybe I'll like it. Maybe I won't like it. But at some point, you just got to jump in. So jump in and say yes to a bunch of things. And then the last part is you already have this job. So before you discard it long-term, really look, is there anything in it that's salvageable? Like, is there any part of your job that just lights you up? Maybe you do it five minutes a day. Maybe it's that once a month project you have to do. Who knows? For me, I thought being a doctor was my purpose in life. I realized it wasn't, but there was a part of it that still really excited me. It was the hospice portion. So over years, I kept on getting rid of those things I didn't like. Like I was getting stressed out by my clinic. So I got rid of it. I was working in nursing homes, but I was getting calls at 3 a.m. in the morning. So eventually I got rid of that because like you, I started looking at my finances and said, well, I like some income still coming in, but maybe I could take a 25% pay cut and that would get rid of those 3 a.m. phone calls. 
And so when I really distilled it down to what in my job I liked, I liked the hospice portion. I was able to get rid of weekends, nights, strange phone calls, responsibilities I didn't like. And all of a sudden, that job that was stressful and exhausting me was just enjoyable and added to my sense of purpose and meaning. Like being a doctor was no longer defining me. I was not finding my identity there. I wasn't finding as much meaning and purpose as I had before. But when I got rid of all that stuff I didn't like, what was left was something that helped define me as a person. The hospice work really meant something to me. So I had to get rid of a lot of things. So before you throw that job out to go start something else, see if there's a kernel of your identity and purpose in there. And I think if you do those three things, I'm sure there's a million other things you can do, right? You can hire a career coach. I've actually had some luck with career coaches. Some people really like those. You can do all sorts of stuff. But for me, those three things really opened me up. But the truth of the matter is, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think it's a lot of trial and error. And I imagine that's partially what you found, right? That some things work and some things don't. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's part of the, the frustration, I guess, is that you know it's an individual pursuit. But I guess, like I said before, I've been super disciplined and super scheduled. So I've been one of these people that I'm able to put my head down and just pursue and it's not a problem. So that's why it was so strange when it started every six months. And then it kind of became a bit more frequent that, you know, I wasn't really someone that relied on my feelings or either, even sort of dove into them at all. It was, I, I ignored those because I had my schedule. I followed the schedule. The schedule equaled results and achievements. And that's always what I pursued. But now I'm at this point and it just... Yeah, it feels like there's there's a switch. There's something different that I need to pursue, and it's very unclear. It's very uh, in the ether. It's it's a lot harder for me to grasp at just in the, the type of person I am. So, yeah, I, I, I totally I totally agree with a lot of what you said there. I've been trying similar things along those lines um as i said my my daughter's come along to some of the uh quieting of the mind and quieting of the body is um a little more challenging right now with uh, three or four wake-ups at night but that's just uh that's a problem to be solved i have a question for you actually if you don't mind sure you mentioned about your outlet of writing and i actually think that's probably something that suits me i'm kind of one of these people where i try and take the lessons I can from the the research and the literature out there. So obviously things like exercise, you know, there's there's no way you can ignore it. You have to do it. Things like journaling are research proven as well. So I've done a lot of journaling for probably close to a decade now and I've always been pushed towards writing from from those around me. Did you try other outlets except apart from the the blog post like were you doing things like journaling and you, you found it was was different in terms of what it let you process compared to blog posts or or was it the same so i've done writing in a lot of different forms i've actually been blogging about medicine since 2005 and i started blogging about personal finance in 2017 In that time I was blogging about medicine, I self-published a few books. I wrote for a few different websites. Um, So I've done writing in lots of different ways. 
And I think you just have to see what it feels like to you, right? You just have to go and do it and see if it feels right. And remember, the writing is great because you might come out with a product that you do something with and that gives you purpose, right? So when I started writing a medical blog, I ended up creating a community around that blog, which made me more grounded in who I was and I felt more of a sense of identity and I felt like I was helping people or changing lives. Um, But then the writing itself changes you and makes you really start thinking about what's important. So it's an iterative process that helps you work through this. It also will create possibly a product you may or may not do something with. Um, So I think they're both of those benefits. The other thing that I think really keep in mind when it comes to all this is we tend to think of all of this as all or nothing. And reality is a lot different than that. So let's say over the next year, you developed 5 or 10% more purpose or found 5 or 10% more meaning. That's going to significantly improve your life. And if you build on that over a few years, you may find that it's not all or nothing. You don't go from being lost to having 100% purpose in your life, but that you build that in. So for instance, if you have a baby daughter, maybe part of what you do is build in those rituals with her weekly or monthly or however you do those. And that can be that 5% that you're doing for the next six months, right? Is maybe part of building your purpose, identity, and meaning up is saying, okay, I'm going to create a ritual with my daughter that's going to have meaning in my life and is going to have meaning with her life, especially as she gets older. And that's going to make me feel more connected. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with overall changing the world other than that's time that you are going to spend that's meaningful, that helps ground you in who you are. And so if you look at it as these little increments as opposed to trying to find that one thing that's going to take you from having no purpose to having 100% meaningful, purposeful life, most of the time there's a lot of in between there. Yeah, I like that. I like that suggestion a lot. It's, yeah, definitely. I'm going to take that one away and, and do something with it. We've we've got the little um, standard things right now, like reading our books and stuff together, but that sounds like a very cool idea. The reasoning behind the question is entirely centered on work, and I, I totally appreciate it's um, a massively privileged problem. Um, I, you know, every other nugget in my life um, is as good as it possibly could be. But for some reason, I'm one of these assholes that <laughs> seem to want to pursue um, the best and the optimal at all times. And you're totally right in terms of the, the incremental improvement. And that, that's really what I should be targeting. But I'm still too stupid and uh, <laughs> almost insist on looking for the the big change that you know, turns everything around. So yeah, it was just to point out that the the real reasoning behind the problem is centered on work is because I'm so extremely blessed and lucky that all of the other components of my life are really good as far as I see them anyway. So it's just um, to try and create that cohesion, I guess, when you, you read stuff in philosophy about the good life, there's always mentions of a sense of purpose. And I feel like, yeah, every other element I've got sorted, that that bit is maybe the one that either I just have a bit confused in my head or uh, that I don't quite have yet. 
Yeah. Remember too, work is one of those complicated things because if you're like probably both of us, we're very achievement focused people. So work feels really good because you can set a goal, achieve it, set the next goal, achieve it. And that's great until you realize that those achievements aren't really making you happy anymore. I certainly came to this point in my life where I kept on, you know, we, we talk, I, I talk about this all the time. There's the hedonic treadmill, right? You buy something, it brings you joy for a short period of time, but before you know it, you need to keep buying more to make you happy. Well, I think achievements like that too. So we go to work and we get all this positive feedback when we achieve and we build and we grow. But if you get to be good at what you do, you're going to keep on setting more of those achievements in front of you which feels wonderful for a while until you start feeling bad because no matter how much you achieve, you're always going to set up that next goal, that next pin to knock over, and it gets exhausting. And so it's hard for people like us to let go of what we've built, especially in our workplace, because that's where we traditionally have gotten all this positive feedback and it's clear feedback. You can make an outline and say, this is where I want to be at work and I either meet it or don't meet it, but at least you have clear achievable goals. Life is a lot more ephemeral and sometimes the goal is to enjoy yourself while you're in the moment. And for me, that was really hard to learn, to say, I can do something and enjoy it for what it is, and it doesn't have an endpoint, and I'm not going to have a product to show afterwards, and it's not going to take me to the next level of anything. I'm just going to do this thing because it's going to be enjoyable and help me feel more connected as a person. And I still struggle with that, with this podcast, with my writing. Like, it's hard to let go of the end product and be in the moment. But that's also what's probably my guess is going to make you more happy in the end. Or I don't I don't like the word happiness. I don't you know that's such such a hard thing to try to figure out how to actually reach but maybe more content maybe to live at a more comfortable place is when you learn to enjoy those moments without what you're going to get from them. And that's a big part of letting go of this. It's, it's letting go of our achievement-oriented mindset because that's not making you happy anymore. Whether you want it to or not, these little reminders every six months or three months, this feeling that something is off, it's not because you don't have enough money. It's not because you don't have enough love because I'm assuming you have love and a child. Like you said, you feel blessed with all these things. Maybe that discomfort is realizing that you're jumping from thing to thing, but those things aren't making you happy anymore. And maybe it is time to focus on what things make me feel more content. Sometimes even, like I said, regardless with the outcome. And I know I'm certainly, I'm taking all of my stuff and putting it on you. So that may not be you at all, but that certainly is the process I went through. And so as I talked to you and saw your email and listened to how this episode affected you, that's what I think. And that's exactly why we did this episode. This was one of the first episodes of the What's Up Next podcast. I think it was like episode 13, right? So I'm now on episode 113. 
So it was one of the first episodes that I wanted to do because it is difficult. Trying to figure out whether money will make you happy is like that quintessential question. And once hopefully you get past that, then the next question is, okay, getting financially secure won't make me happy. What will? And I think that's what you're struggling with. I think it's what we all struggle with our whole lives. But there are degrees of getting better with it. And being where you are right now, knowing that this is an issue for you is way ahead of the game. Because most people mindlessly just keep on getting on that treadmill, achieving more, making more money, and then have no idea what they're going to do once they get to that point where maybe they don't need to work anymore, or certainly they can slow down. So I'm sure it feels very daunting for you. But having this awareness where you are right now in life, my bet is being a little more intentional about it, you will find ways to quench those needs. I'm very optimistic for you. Thanks, Doc. I appreciate that. I, I hope you're right. Um, I think, yeah, when you're talking about your your own life in terms of uh, being driven towards achievement, it, it is me to a T as well. It's absolutely nail on the head type stuff. It's funny when you talk about just doing something for the sake of it and enjoying it. I, I can remember... Um, being involved in kind of the financial independence community in uh, the United Kingdom and, and Europe really quite early and kind of knowing all the people in that and being pushed towards, um, yeah, you should do a blog. Like you have a unique point of view. You don't hear anything from anybody in Northern Ireland. You should do that. And I think within about an hour or two hours of considering this was already like in my head thinking of SEO optimization and stuff. And then I was just like, no, no, that this I've ruined it for myself already. I can't go down this route. But um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's a uh, creative outlet is maybe what I need to explore a little more um, that I haven't done to this point. And I think that's definitely something I'll, I'll take forward. The good news is I have lots of friends who are in this space and we've all gone through similar things. So you are not alone. And most of those people who I've seen go through this do find some sense of meaning and purpose. They find something that does eventually light them up. So I feel pretty certain that with some time and with some thoughtfulness, you'll get there. And you're not alone. We're all going through it. I appreciate that, Doc. Yeah, as as you said before, I'm quite lucky to have come to this conundrum early. And I've been really lucky that from an early age, I knew that money wasn't the answer it was just a tool and my kind of pursuit of fi was just to look after my family mostly so once it's or once it got to a point where it was kind of we had decent backing we we weren't going to face anything catastrophic it was kind of switching gears then and that that's when i started considering this stuff and uh, looking into it a bit more and i guess part of the frustration now is probably that this has been going on for a couple of years and I maybe haven't made as much progress as I would have wanted, but that's just the achievement-driven mindset coming in there and I kind of need to be more okay with the process of just exploring and trying new things and, and looking for answers. But yeah, as I said before, it's I'm, I'm extremely lucky, I'm extremely blessed. It's just the, the work component is the thing that's not right for me. It's it's something I need to do to look after my family. Um, it's something that I want to do in terms of contribution to 
society to the larger good I, I think it's it's good to provide value and and to be useful i think that's that's part of purpose so i yeah as i said just just keep exploring and hopefully i'll i'll come across something that seems like a direction i need to pursue and patrick from belfast you will come back and tell us as you sort these things out. So thank you for listening. I appreciate you following along with the podcast and calling in today so that we could have this really cool conversation. Take it easy and thanks for being on. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Doc. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Did I get the name right? We 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 did a lot of keyword stuffing on that title, but yeah, money savvy family is what you want people to come away with. Yeah, because I know the the manuscript I actually have was a different name, but then you sent me the more recent manuscript, and I just couldn't read it on my phone, and I already had it on paper. But I wanted to make sure I got that right because I don't want to mess it up. It turns out that Money Smart Family has been trademarked by uh, Stephen and Ed Economides, and so yeah. uh, we also wanted to avoid the Dave Ramsey crowd. The other thing is, I, as I said, and I, I was sure to say in the episode that I specifically avoided some of the tactical conversations. Are you guys okay with that? I mean, we can go back and record more, but I just, I didn't feel, I feel like those things are incredibly important, but I feel like what really excites me about your story is the philosophy, and hopefully we will push people to go to the book to learn the tactical. But to me, the philosophy of why you did what you did, how you did it, and the downstream effects is a great story and you guys by the way are wonderful together on the microphone so you should do lots of interviews because your ability to interact with each other and have it go smoothly and comment on each other's thoughts and i mean even like the do you want to tell them about that story oh yeah let's do that like (laughs) is gold in podcast episodes because it just it really makes it feel real and granular excellent and i really appreciate the approach and not going through every story and every chapter and talking about every tactic you're right. It is the philosophy that's the most important part. Yeah. And that's and at least... buy our book if they, they know all the tactics. <laughs> yeah, if we give away the book on a podcast. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to say that specifically in the episode, because I think you have guys got great tactics in there, but I didn't want to specifically go into all that. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.